0: Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. Deuteronomy chapter 4. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way our Lord God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? And so, Lord, as we come before you, we rejoice and thank you that as your people today, you are near us, you hear us when we pray. We thank you for your word that you have given to us. And I pray that as we conclude our series in Deuteronomy today that we would experience your goodness to us, your wisdom, and your restoration. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, about a week before Emily and I got married, uh, it was our anniversary of our dating relationship at that point, and we decided let's, let's, let's do a big one. That's going to be our last kind of dating relationship, you could say. Uh, of course, we kept on dating when we got married, uh, but you know what I mean. Uh, and so we decided let's go into the city. Let's have a big night out. It'll be fun. Uh, and in the weeks leading up to that particular day, we'd heard about this trend that had been happening in Melbourne. You see, thousands upon thousands of people, we heard, had been starting to attach padlocks to the Southgate Bridge as sort of a testament of, their, of the longevity of their love. And of course, because Emily and I were, were getting married in, in a week's time, we thought, well, what a beautiful opportunity for us to do something similar and uh, and uh, lock our, our own love and commitment to one another and to God. Now, for most locks, as you can probably see up here, uh, people had just grabbed a, a sharpie or a texter, and they just sort of scribbled some names on there. But of course, uh, over time, we thought they might fade away. Now, Emily and I, we thought ahead. We wanted our padlock to stand the test of time to, to last for, uh, for generations and generations. We wanted it one day to, we wanted one day to be able to, to take our future children to this bridge and show them, look here 's the lock that we did." we put on here years ago. And so we got it engraved. We, we carved our names. in And on the other side, we put a subtle evangelism reference, God is love, 1 John 4, 19, which was one of the passages that we had at our wedding. So it was on our minds, you see. And then, as, as Emily and I, we locked it onto the bridge. We did the done thing, and then, you know, we, we tossed the key into the river. No turning back now. And as our padlock, it slowly came to rest in its new home, we thought, well, we're set up for, for many prosperous years in the, in the promised land of, of this particular lock, as it came to rest alongside all those other locks. Well, today we finish our series in Deuteronomy. I don't know how you have found it. It's been a bit of a roller coaster of a whole bunch of different themes I do really hope that as you continue to look through these in your growth groups, it's going to be a fruitful experience as we feast on God's word revealed uh, to his uh, original people. And if you have been with us for the last six weeks on Sundays, uh, we've been sitting with the, the new generation of the Israelites as they, as they waited uh, on the edge of the promised land, on the edge of the land that God had given to his people. Through Moses, they've received God's wisdom and they've been given everything that they need to live long in the land that God has given them. And by the time that Moses he finishes all these words, and chapter 30 is where he finishes his big address to the Israelites, it becomes clear that unlike their previous Generation that were found unworthy of entering the land, God indeed was going to bring his people into the land. He, he was going to bring them in. They would arrive. And even back in, in chapter 3, um, it, even though they wouldn't have Moses with them by their side for much longer, God promised that Joshua would faithfully lead Israel into the land. The Lord said to Moses, Commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he will lead his people across and will cause them to inherit the land that you will see. See, Israel was certainly going to enter the land. The big question mark now is what would happen when they got there? Emily's and my padlock had certainly arrived at its new home on the Southgate Bridge. What would happen next was a bit of an unknown. Now, if you remember, if you were here last week and you and you remember, um, the stakes for Israel were very, very high. In chapter twenty-eight of Deuteronomy, Moses he laid out this choice between life and, and death. It was like blessing and cursing. You know, if they, if Israel, if this new generation, they chose to obey. their their God to trust in his wisdom and obey what he said, then they would experience God's abundant blessing life in the land. But if they decided to reject their God and forge their own way ahead without him, then God says, well, then you will receive my curse. And last week I suggested that even in Deuteronomy itself, God expects Israel to fail. God knows that Israel will, will not love him with all their heart and with all their soul. God knows that Israel will experience the curses that he laid out for them. And while that is certainly true, there are more chapters in Israel's story than just one of failure. God has written a rich story for his people, a story of blessing, of curse, removal, and of restoration. And that's what chapter 30 is all about. The first 10 verses of chapter 30, it show us the story of Israel's removal and their restoration. See, these these verses, they show us that Israel will indeed experience the Lord's blessings, but also his curses, and eventually their removal from the land. But these verses also show us that eventually, that one day God or that Israel would experience the Lord's restoration too. And in verse 1, as we're looking through it, we get this whirlwind snapshot of the Lord's future blessings, curses, and removal. If you've got a Bible with you, I encourage you to have a look at chapter 30. And verse 1, it says, When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you, and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. And then it goes on in verse 2. But notice that this verse, it starts with a when, when all these things happen, it's, it's not an if, it's not a conditional. Like if, if you do this, like it's, it's like when these blessings happen, when these curses happen, when I will remove you from the land. These things are all going to happen. And sure enough, if we look ahead into, into where Israel's story goes from here, uh, in the book of Joshua, uh, under, under his faithful leadership, Israel experiences God's promised blessing in the land, just as God promised that he would do. One of the tribes exclaims to Joshua in uh, in chapter 17, he says, we are a numerous people. The Lord has blessed us abundantly. See, They were in the land, they were experiencing his blessing. And towards the end of the book, we get these remarkable words, the Lord blessed. Gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed, every one was fulfilled. They are experiencing a life of blessing in the land. And even at the start of the book of Judges, which is the one that follows Joshua, it's reiterated that that Joshua and his generation of people who entered the land were, in fact, faithful. See, it says in chapter 2, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of all all the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. But sadly... Israel's life of blessing would not last long. As the next generation of Israelites grew up after them, like so many people living in Australia today, they they didn't share the faith of their parents or of their grandparents. After Joshua and his generation died, Judges 2 continues on to say just a couple of verses later, Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And as the verses continue on, it it describes God's curses coming upon the Israelites, just as God promised that they would. See, they forged their own way apart from God. And then the big refrain in Judges is that everyone did, did what they thought was right in their own eyes. This is a people who are who are turning away from God. And so then the rest of judges describes these curses, the curses that God warned in Deuteronomy 28 were now coming to pass. And as, as an aside, as I'm thinking about this, given how much emphasis Deuteronomy places on, on passing the law, passing on the commands of God to the next generation and the next generation... It does make you wonder, doesn't it, how well Joshua and his generation actually did at doing that, if if it seems that the next generation that grew up knew nothing about God or what he'd done. It's kind of scary how quickly faith can be lost, isn't it? If you've seen the, the data in the recent census, it's clear that far less people today that even like 10 years ago are willing to identify as a Christian. Now there's a lot that could be said on this, but I think at least part of the story is that it's so easy to neglect passing on the gospel to the next generation I used to work at the, uh, the Christian Union at RMIT and my my boss or the national director of our organization, uh, he would frequently remind us that, that the gospel is lost in four generations. See, he says the gospel that's taught in the first generation is assumed in the second generation before it's neglected in the third generation and ultimately denied in the fourth. At what point did the gospel begin to be lost? Would it be in the second generation where it was assumed? You see, the gospel must never be assumed. It needs to be continually taught and passed on to the next generation and the next generation. I mean, that's what we call evangelism. That's, that's why we're doing this series after this called Authentic Evangelism because it's, it's so important. And, and if we think about our own life, even the fact that we are gathered here today, 2,000 years after Jesus died and rose, it's all due to God's grace in generations and generations of people faithfully passing on the message of the gospel. And we are the recipients of that. How good is that? And now as we look ahead to the generations that will follow us, that's now our job too, to pass on that message of salvation so that people know who the Lord is. They know what he has done. And so I do hope that you join us over the next few weeks as well. But coming back to Deuteronomy now, um, the Israelites throughout the book, they were, they were urged to, to hold fast to God, to, to not abandon him when they entered the land. And if you were here a few weeks ago, Emily shared that the central command in Deuteronomy chapter 8 was that Israel were not to forget the Lord their God. And according to that chapter, the time that Israel would be most tempted to walk away from God would not be during the hard times, but actually during the time of their prosperity and blessing, when life was good, when they were well-fed, when they were prosperous, when they were satisfied. In that moment, they mustn't turn away from God. But towards the end of Deuteronomy, God knew that this is what would indeed happen To Israel in the future. And he tells them in in chapter 32 verse 15 that they became heavier. They became became filled with God's blessings and it made them fat. I love the language here. And in that prosperity, in that weight, then the Israelites would abandon their God. Now, last week I mentioned that for the whole of chapter 32, this is only a few verses of it here, for the whole of chapter 32, God gives Israel's downfall narrative to Moses as a sort of a a Hamilton-style hip-hop song. And um, for those who are interested in, 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 uh, in Hamilton and that kind of musical style, since you didn't get to hear it last week because of time, I thought, well, look, you know, I've, I've I've put in those father and son verses that I mentioned. Okay, at least we've got one person that might appreciate this, uh, and so I've slightly changed the words a bit so that they uh, they rhyme. But uh, but this is this is what God says to His people. The Israelites grew fat and kicked, filled with food, became heavy and slick. They abandoned the God who, saved them, who made them, ooh, and rejected the God who saved them. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave birth to you. The Lord saw all this and rejected them, angered by his daughters and his sons. He said, I will hide my face from them and see what their end will be. For this generation is perverse, my children who are unfaithful to me. And then, uh, you yeah, know, you're never going to get God's blessing now. Anyway, that's enough excitement for now. But you see, one of the one of the reasons why God blessed his people in the first place, even looking all the way back to Abraham, Abraham was, uh, if you remember, in Genesis 12, God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to um, make you numerous. I'm going to give you land offspring blessing so that through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. See, God's blessing, it always has an outward focus. And so God, he blesses his people with the hope that they would, in turn, be able to bless all the nations. The verses I read right at the start as I prayed, you know, what other nation is so great as to have our Lord near us when we pray to him? This is something that the nations would see. They would look and see how good Israel had it, and they would be blessed by them. They would come into the fold of God. And yes, in their time of prosperity and blessing, because of Israel's sinful heart, they hoarded that blessing for themselves and it made them fat and heavy. And something similar happened to Emily and I with the padlocks on the Southgate Bridge. Less than two years after Emily and I had established our love lock in its home on that bridge, tragedy <laughs> It turns out that this bridge had been blessed, really blessed, with too many locks, 20,000 locks to be exact, and the combined weight was tearing the bridge apart. Apparently they weighed over three tonnes. And so the Lord, Mayor, uh, in in his sovereignty, (laughs) declared that the locks were no longer worthy of remaining in the promised land on the bridge. It's not a direct quote, but I'm paraphrasing here. And so, one by one, every single lock was removed and taken away into exile, into a foreign storage facility that we couldn't access. And to say that Emily and I were shattered was an understatement. Like, like we wanted to be able to enjoy taking our kids one day to see this, and, and now there's nothing to show for it. Now just as God promised in at the end of Deuteronomy 28 eventually sinful Israel was removed from their land the Lord sent other nations like Assyria and Babylon to overpower them and he scattered his people from his place of blessing Israel would eventually experience the Lord's blessings Curses and removal from the land. And I'm aware that I'm using a fairly lighthearted example of this love lock to, to describe exile, but but the reality is I I don't have any experience that compares to what exile would be like. Many of us here in Australia have have no idea what it means to be forcibly removed. Or to have to flee from your home country. But I do know that some in our church, and especially those in our community, some of you, will know exactly how that feels. You see, it's it's a loss of, of home, of belongings, of, of culture, of friends and family, loss of a shared history. It's a loss of everything that that makes us, well, us. And for Israel, their worship of their God Yahweh was, was so tied to the temple in Jerusalem that as they were exiled, it was destroyed. They had no connection to God anymore. But God still has another chapter in the story for his people. Just as surely as Israel would receive God's blessings, curse, and removal, they would also experience the Lord's restoration. And I say the Lord's restoration because if you have a look at these 10 verses, the Lord, that's a little Lord in capital letters there, which is where we get Yahweh from, it appears 14 times. That's more than one per verse. See, the thing is that this, all this act of restoration, this is all the Lord's work. This is all God. It's his initiative. It's his compassion. It's his action. And verses 2 to 10 show us what this restoration looks like. Uh, Similar to Deuteronomy 8, these verses in chapter 30, they form a bit of a mirrored structure that, that point us in to see The central way that God brings about restoration. You see, first in God's story of restoration, Israel will return to the Lord in repentance and faith. See, even in exile, in their time in exile, God says in verses 1 and 2 that Israel will bring to mind these words of Deuteronomy and they will take to heart what has happened to them. And God says they would return. To the Lord and obey him. The Hebrew word for return appears seven times in these ten verses. And so there's a bit of a play on words happening throughout this chapter. But in this particular verse and in verse ten, the idea of returning to the Lord uh, it brings about this idea of repentance. See, the people in Israel, they were to turn away from their sin and turn back to God in faith and obedience. And this act of repentance and faith, it invites the Lord to come and find them. When all hope seemed lost, out of nowhere, Emily and I, we learned that the council was giving us one chance to recover our padlock. There was only a four-day window in which Uh, It could be found. And it meant searching through a couple of crates of 20,000 locks. But the thing is, the invitation was there for the lock to be found, and so I took it. I brought my dad with me, and we began the long search. In God's story of restoration, the second thing is that the Lord will return Israel to blessing. When Israel, when they're in exile and they bring all these things to their mind, when they turn to the Lord their God in repentance and faith, he promises to return Israel to their state of blessing. As we read through these verses, we see God restoring all of those promises of, of, uh, of blessing that he had in chapter 28. We see flourishing and prosperity. We see the authority and rule over other nations And perhaps the most important for their current situation, the Lord himself will go to the ends of the earth where his people have been banished and he will bring them back into his land and into his presence. The Lord will return Israel to blessing. And as my dad and I, we were were searching through these countless padlocks. They, They gave us gloves, which was very helpful because padlocks are kind of sharp. Uh, and every, every one of these, these padlocks was basically looking the same. I remembered that our padlock was unique. You see, we'd inscribed it with our name. We'd, we'd carved into the surface of it. And so whereas most of these padlocks, all the texture and things had faded and gone, I knew that our one would still be visible if we found it. And just then, after a, more than half an hour, perhaps closer to an hour of looking I was thinking of giving up, and there it was. I had found my lost padlock. <laughs> sure, it was rusted up. It was a bit tattered, but I didn't care. Our lock had finally been restored into my possession, and it was the best feeling. It's a bit like the uh, in uh, Luke 15... Um, Jesus tells a couple of parables, one of which is this woman who has lost a coin and and she found it and she's like, rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. That's what it felt like. But you see, as wonderful as this story is, that's as far as this lock's redemption narrative goes. You see, I may may have the lock back in my possession, it may be in my hands, but its years of being exposed to the elements have seized up its insides. I found it's, a, it's a, a brother or sister lock eventually, and I put the key in it, the one that we I hadn't thrown into the lake, into the river, and it didn't work. You see, if this, this lock in one sense is not fully restored. It can't function as a lock. It can't reattach itself to anything else. It's, it's got a problem deep within its inside that my level of skill and work cannot fix. The only way that this glock could ever be revealed, redeemed is if, if, if some, someone with a lot more power and experience actually knew what they were doing and brought this thing back to life. I'm powerless. You and I are powerless. But God is Powerful. You see, in God's story of restoration, the Lord will renew Israel's heart. In the center of God's story of restoration is a promise that God will do something about the human heart. Verse 6 says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. In the Old Testament, circumcision was a compulsory practice for any Israelite male. It was a physical procedure, I won't go into the details. It was a physical procedure that clearly marked people out as belonging to God. We see this first described all the way back in Genesis 17 after God has chosen Abraham and has chosen to establish his people through him. It was something that Abraham and all of his descendants following him needed to do. It was, it was an outward, it was a physical sign that they were Yahweh's. And just as, uh, as Emily and I had, had altered our lock, we'd, uh, we'd cut away some of the front to inscribe our name on it Circumcision did the same to God's people. But what's really interesting about Deuteronomy is it only mentions circumcision twice. It's mentioned a lot more in some of the other books of the Pentateuch, but in Deuteronomy it only comes up twice. And what's even more interesting is both of these times it always talks about circumcision of the heart, See, if, if outward circumcision was was a physical sign that the people were set apart for God, then circumcision of the heart, it's, it's an internal spiritual change that takes place. It, 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 it re- relates to a heart that is that is not hard-hearted, but is, is one that is open to God, that is pointed, oriented towards Him and His purposes in the world. Back in chapter. 10, verse 16, um, if you were here when Naomi was preaching, circumcision of the heart is given as a command for Israel to perform. Moses tells the people, circumcise your hearts and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Stiff-necked is often used as, uh, interchangeably with this idea of being hard-hearted. You see, it's, it's, you need to renew your heart. Don't, don't have a hard one. But we know that Israel ultimately failed to do this themselves. They were not able to circumcise their hearts. And now the only other time that Deuteronomy mentions circumcision of the heart, it's now on God's lips. This is something that he alone will do. God promises to do this. Circumcision of the heart is only something that God can do. Humanity's failure to trust and obey their God was, was ultimately a problem of their hearts. And more than anything, we need God's renewal in our hearts too. We need our hearts radically changed to a Godward direction. And then, and only then, will we, will we be able to truly love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul. Only then, after we have been transformed by God, will we be able to turn to God and find life? And this is exactly what God promises that he will do. And even when Israel, they were in Babylon, they were in exile, through the prophet Ezekiel, God makes this same restoration promise that one day he will renew their hearts In Ezekiel 36, God says, I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. Very similar to Deuteronomy 30 language here. And then he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This promise of a renewed heart is still something that stands. But did you notice how it would take place? It was through the gift of the spirit. The Holy Spirit is what renews our insides. The Holy Spirit is what marks us out as God's people. The Holy Spirit is what circumcises our hearts. The Spirit living inside us enables us to love and please God. And as we look ahead to the New Testament, it picks up this idea. See, God says that this same heart-transforming Holy Spirit is available to any of us if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There's a number of passages in the New Testament that talk about this, but here's just two of them. Ephesians 1, it says, When you believed in Christ, God identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has has promised us to be his own people. And the end of Romans 2, True circumcision... In the, in the gap there, it's not, it's not a physical procedure. It's a, it's, it's a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. See, it's a reorienting of, of the heart in a Godward direction. When we return to God and have faith in Jesus, we become part of God's restoration story. See, through the Holy Spirit, which he had promised in the Old Testament, God marks us as his own. Through the Spirit, God circumcises our hearts. Through the Spirit, God transforms our hard hearts to seek him. Through God's gift of the Spirit, we have the guarantee that the fullness of God's blessing is available to us. Earlier in Ephesians 1, Paul says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a blessed person. And in the fullness of time in eternally, we can expect all of these wonderful blessings in God's presence forever. We live in an age where restoration has come in Jesus and the Spirit. And so as we close our time in Deuteronomy, I'm going to pray that this reality would transform us today. Dear Heavenly Father, through your word you show us that you are a God of rescue, redemption and restoration. Please, Father, may your transforming power be at work in each of our lives today. We thank you for your promises to your people back in Deuteronomy. We thank you that amongst the inevitable failures of your people, you remain trustworthy and faithful and you love them. Thank you that no matter how far your people may find themselves from you, you are the God who searches out and finds us. You leave the 99 to come and find the one, and you rejoice when you bring them back home. At this time, we bring to mind those people known to us who are far from you. We pray that your mighty hand would bring them back into your fold. Thank you that all those who turn from their sin and have faith in Jesus are saved. I ask that you would enable repentance and faith in those people that we know. We thank you for your promise of restoration through your spirit. We thank you that you promise to give the spirit to us to transform our hearts. And so may you work in our hearts to fully orient us to to loving you and living according to your wisdom. May you enable our spirit to embrace our identity as your beloved children marked by your spirit as your own. Please work in us, Lord, so that we may love you with all our heart and with all our soul and live. I ask this through Jesus Christ. Amen.